They called us monsters, so monsters we became. We are monsters out of the closet. I'm Nicole. And I'm Shreya. This month, we dive into the dangers of the grave. Explorers should tread carefully on this consecrated ground, lest they find forces darker than they bargained for. In our first piece, two would-be grave robbers discover that bodies are far from the worst inhabitants of graveyards. Digging was written by Charlotte Platt and features Wart Hill as the narrator, Eric Little as the voice of Rafa, Ari Ryder as Hamish, and Matt as John. Rafa disliked graveyards. He especially disliked graveyards at night. He particularly disliked graveyards at night in the cold. It was not a good disposition for a grave robber, but needs must and he certainly needed. He was standing in one now, freezing half to death and totally unconvinced that there was any merit in this particular endeavor tonight. The ground's hard. Why are we digging when there's snow in the air? He shoved his hands under his armpits. Greyfriars wasn't his favorite graveyard. It was in the city center and people could come through it quick. No warning for them to scarper. Because we need money and we get money through bodies. So quit complaining and take your turn digging. Hamish said, passing the shovel over to him. He wiped the sweat off his head with his handkerchief and glanced about, watching the mist for signs of any zealous family members. Family got very particular about the dead for some reason. Not like the person was there to complain themselves, but there were all sorts now. Great massive cages to go around the grave, people keeping watch for the first few nights until the rot set in, alarms built into the coffins. A lot of nonsense, really. Seems like a stupid idea at Christmas Eve. Rafa set the blade into the soil. He pushed down, putting his whole body weight onto it and grunting as it came flush with the ground. The digging was the worst bit, especially in the cold. Rafa had no issue with the bodies. The dead weren't going to do anything to him. But he ached with the cold, and the air burned his lungs with ice. There's no one here to guard them, though. They don't pay them enough to guard at this time of year. We can get them lifted and sold quick. And we're splitting it like normal? Rafa got into the rhythm of hefting the dirt. The older man had been good to him so far, but he never trusted it too much. People would screw over incomers like him, and while Hamish had never called Rafa any of the names he heard in the pubs, you could never tell. Of course we are. We might even get a bit extra with it being the cold season. They'll still be fresh. Good point. Rafa sped up his swings. They used a wooden spade for the graves, quieter than a metal one, but you had to be careful not to clip larger stones or it would crack. They dug at the head of the grave and pulled the end of the coffin off meaning they could lift the body out without drawing suspicion to the turned earth. It wasn't a perfect system, but it was quicker than trying to dig up a whole plot, and they managed it well. Hold a minute. Hamish clapped a hand on Rafa's shoulder. I hear someone coming. Rafa stilled, hunching down in the hole they'd made. It was plenty dark still, the moon was barely visible, and the lamps weren't making much through the fog, but no point in being obvious. Hamish vanished into the swirling cloud with their lantern, and Rafa held his breath, toying with the idea of keeping digging. 
No point in wasted effort, and they could still scarper with the body if he got to the coffin. Rafa, get over here! He heard Hamish's voice carry over and pushed himself out of the hole. He trotted over, spade held close to his chest, peering through the fog. Hamish was stood at a headstone with a grin as wide as the river. What is it? Get closer, lad, it's opportunity! Rafa frowned, not understanding until he was next to Hamish. The grave in front of them was fresh, not just turned earth but open with a pile beside it. It would only be a half hour's work to get the coffin out, if that, and no one would wonder at the digging when it was already so deep done. How did we miss that? There's no other burials due here today. I checked the death notices. This is either someone moving in on our patch, or it's an official thing. Hamish sucked his teeth. Worth taking it. Of course it is. I haven't heard any of the police about I'm not giving some pissant a chance. I'll dig here. You watch out at the other one. Rafa dropped into the waiting pit. Aye, right you are. Hamish set the lantern down at the edge of the grave. Whistle if you need me over. Will do. Keep your ears open for anyone else digging. Hamish nodded and disappeared back into the darkness of the mist. Rafa didn't mind being alone in the grave. The dead weren't that talkative, but he minded if someone else was going to be getting into their business. He pushed the thought aside and began digging anew, moving methodically along the grave. You're quite good at that. Rafa froze as he heard the voice from above him, shoving himself into a long wall of the grave. A man stood on the opposite one, lantern in hand and an amused look on his face. He was a tall one, wrapped up against the cold in a dark wool coat and his hair a straggly mess around his face. Heh, <laughs> uh, comes with practice. Can I help you, sir? Rafa let his accent out. He usually flattened it, but he could pass as a laborer if he tried. No need for that, friend. I know what you're up to. I'm just following orders. <laughs> the city doesn't issue wooden spades. The man crouched down at the edge of the grave, perching on his heels like a grotesque on a church roof. I've no problem with it. There's more than enough dead in the ground already. My name's John Sutherland. He inclined his head rather than offering a hand, and Rafa had to admire the sense in that. Raphael. He let the blade of his spade rest on the soil. Ha! <laughs> Italian. I like it. John grinned at him hungrily, a raise to his brows that Rafa didn't like. You hear a lot, Raphael? No. Sensible choice. It's jolly busy. Can be. The dead tend to stay put. <laughs> I bet they do. John chuckled, his chest bouncing in his coat. Unless you get a hold of them. I imagine you have to be quick for them to be any use. You know how it is. Rafa smiled, hoping Hamish was going to do something soon. He must have heard them. It's a nice cemetery, really. <laughs> it's too flashy for me. All these monuments like houses for the rotting bodies of the rich. They have big houses in life. Why do they need it in death as well? A valid question, Raphael. And one that I'm sure the minds at the university pay no attention to. I try. The back of Rafa's neck itched. Why wasn't Hamish doing something? Had the old git run off and left him? Those big tombs do offer other uses, though. They're perfect for sleeping in over the winter. You sleep in a mausoleum. Can't be a good mattress. <laughs> a hell of a crick in the neck. But the homeless do it, though. They break in to keep the cold off. Better than some of the poor houses. Those are bad places. 
Rafa's heart started to quicken in his chest. John was keeping him talking, and the cold of the earth was starting to seep into Rafa's bones. Not half. Still, you have to do what you have to for survival, don't you, Raphael? Most do. He watched the light move over the man's face. Something about it didn't sit right to him. The skin the wrong color and the flames. Those eyes still looked hungry. This is where we reach an issue, you and I. I have no quarrel with you. Rafa held his hands up. If you want me out of here, I can go. I'll just have to take my friend with me. He's over at another grave. Oh yeah, older fella. White scruff of a beard. Rafa nodded, his hands coming down. He slipped one into his pocket, fingering the knife he had there. They'd never murdered someone for a body, but he would defend himself. Not anymore, I'm afraid. We had a bit of a introduction earlier. I didn't hear anything. <laughs> That's because I'm very good at what I do for survival. John's mouth opened wide to show black teeth. I don't have any quarrel with you. Rafa started to edge towards the foot of the grave. He hadn't dug too deep there yet. He could heft himself up quicker there. Nor to the cow with a farmer. John dropped down into the grave in one smooth movement. His coat flapped behind him, and Rafa saw the wrongness in the man then. The skin waxed thick and mottled. I don't need to tell anyone I saw you. I can say Hamish came here alone, and didn't come back. Well, only half of that would be a lie. John sprang forward to cage Rafa against the hard dirt wall. Rafa fumbled in his pocket, but John grabbed his wrist, pinning it hard against his side. Do you know what I dislike most about grave robbers, Raphael? John hissed, close to Rafa's ear. Rafa could smell the rot of him this close, the moldering of his coat and the mossy greenness of his hair. John squeezed his wrist, prompting, and Rafa shook his head. No. You always steal my best meals. We have to eat the newly dead, you see. Nothing that's been rotten too long. Too long. It's not really any good. Doesn't satisfy the hunger. Just itches. Deep down. You're a cannibal. Rafa choked out the words, his anxiety burning his lungs brighter than the cold air now. <laughs> no, no. John pulled back so Rafa could see him. His eyes were almost milky now, his face sunken in, and the lips peeled back off those black teeth. They looked sharp in the half-light the lantern now gave. What are you? Demons aren't meant to be able to get in here. They have rowan trees for that. I'm a ghoul, you idiot. I'm not a demon. We're not evil. We just need to feed. We hunger. Really, we clean up after you careless louts. Digging the earth up and stuffing your rotten mess inside. Please, John, I have a family. I was just digging for the doctors. They pay us for the fresh ones. I just wanted to have a good meal at Christmas. I didn't know this was your patch. Tears spilled down Rafa's face. He knew the stories about ghouls, creeping things that fed on the flesh of corpses. Back home, his grandma had told him about them, how they would live in the catacombs like they were palaces. Rafa didn't want to die. A family? John paused, inches away from Rafa, teeth bared. 
my mother and my sister, they work in the day, but it's barely enough for our rent, and I wanted us to have a good meal. We didn't know this place was yours. We wouldn't have come in if we did, I swear. John pulled back a little, frowning. He leaned in again, sniffing over Rafa like a dog scenting. John nosed over his jaw and down to his neck, little puffs of air making Rafa shiver despite his coat. He was brought away from that by the lancing pain of a bite to the nape of his neck, just behind his ear. Ah! <sighs> he cried out, flinching, but being held fast by John. He felt the teeth pull back, his blood black on John's chin. There's your Christmas present, Raphael. John swiped his hand over his mouth and spat the blood away. That's my mark. Any others like me, they'll know what it is. You come back stealing my food, and I'll make you my meal. No other ghouls will feed on you. You're my morsel. I won't come here again. I swear it. All right. John stepped back, pacing back towards the discarded spade and plucking it from the ground. I'm keeping this, and your dead friend. You run off now, and don't let me catch you here again. Rafa nodded, his voice choked into submission by the stinging at his neck. He lifted himself out of the grave, sprinting the moment his shoes had purchase. He stumbled, tripping over the legs of a body and flying into the sodden grass. He pushed himself up on his hands, glancing back to meet the dead eyes of Hamish, his head at an ungodly angle on his neck. Rafa swallowed his scream and made himself get up again, running out of the graveyard and back along the streets, his hand up to stem the singing pain in the bite wound. He would go back to laboring. He would dig ditches. He was good at digging. He could do that forever if it meant he never had to go back there. The protagonist of our second piece seeks to solve a mystery in his family's old graveyard. But among the lurking specters of the past, could the object of that mystery find him first? The Man Who Stalks the Spaces Between the Graves was written by Scott Savino and read by J.M. Dow. My house is haunted. This is not one of those stories where a tragic death happened inside. No one has died here. No one is interred in the basement or beneath the foundation. Instead, the two windows upstairs gaze sadly out at the tragic field beyond every day. Rows and rows of tombstones stretch out past my back door and out to the tree line. My great-grandfather Heinrich built this house 117 years ago. At the time, there wasn't a cemetery within 50 miles. When this country was young, the thought of paying someone else to bury your dead as they died was an uncommon luxury. Most took care of their own, and that was the way many preferred it. If they had the space, viewings were held in the home of the deceased. Any clocks were stopped, every mirror was covered to prevent the soul from being reflected back and becoming trapped. When the day of viewing ended, the body was carried out foot first, as superstition dictated, to prevent the corpse from beckoning anyone whom they'd left behind to follow. Your mother, father, sister, brother, husband, wife, or child was brought out to be buried in the yard. Many thought my great-grandfather was foolish, but some, particularly those of means, saw his practice a worthwhile expense. The wealthy would much rather pay a gravesman than do the task themselves. 
their wealth transferred hands. At one point, we were one of the most prominent families in this town. That is, no longer the case, and hasn't been for many decades. This is mostly thanks to my late father, his drinking, and the reputation he'd tarnished. Father was not a good man. He demanded obedience, and would hit you for speaking out of turn if you were sober. Heaven help you if you were stupid enough to do so when he wasn't. He was a hateful man as well, afraid of difference and change. Never did he manage to set aside his prejudice and bigotry, not even to accept me, his only son, for who I was and who I loved. His stubbornness, addiction, and bad business acumen resulted in the first mortgage this property had ever known sometime in the 90s. I remained unaware he'd taken out a second until he was dead, and I began to go through his effects and papers. I found the notices still in their envelopes, postmarked months before, beneath a pile of rubbish unopened. The mortgage was eight months past due. He'd died a month prior, so now it was nine. If I didn't find a way to come up with $30,000 in less than a month to cover missed payments and penalties, the bank would take everything my great-grandfather built away. My legacy, tarnished by my father's hands, would crumble to none. It was an impossible predicament. I'd done the math. I'd have to sell ten plots and do ten burials in short order to make it happen. I'd only done one since moving back. Managing the rest was an impossible feat for a small-town mortician. Even if it were within the realm of possibility, even if it were a hurdle possible to overcome, what after? How would I maintain the cost? There were only 17 plots left, the work would dry up in time, and the bank would come knocking at the door again within a year or two. In desperation, I found myself in a nightly fret to find another solution. After her father sent me out of our home, I found work doing the only business I'd ever known. I'd spent the better part of the last decade employed as a mortician the next town over. I grew up in the funeral home, and had grown into the trade. It was a family tradition. Even if I was disowned and unallowed to work in this place under his tyranny, I intended for it to continue. I moved back here the day he died. The house is much as I remember, if older and falling into disrepair. A small Victorian-style two-story with outdated refrigeration and workspaces in the basement, two viewing rooms, a washroom and the kitchen on the first floor, three bedrooms upstairs, and the largest, two massive windows peaked in semicircle arches like two wide eyes stare down at the graves below. In the stress of worry and hopelessness, I'd spent a lot of time gazing out from those windows. Though the house was sagging with age, some things lingered on unchanged. Every night since I arrived, I saw the thin man walking slowly between the headstones. I remembered him well from my youth. In all these years, he looked just the same, still as uncommonly tall as I remembered him being, draped in an overcoat. On his head, he wore the same black felt hat. Even as a child, I knew there was something preternatural about the graveman, but I never questioned it. Not like I found myself doing now. When I was young, I used to call him great-grandfather. But a day or two ago, I found a photo album caked in over 70 or 80 years of dust. The pages were filled with pictures of the dead, a sort of catalog with notes in the margin. The final photo in its pages was of the late Heinrich on the day of his funeral. I knew him from the note scrawled next to the picture. This man who walked between the plots could not be great-grandfather Heinrich's ghost. Heinrich had died obese. The discovery of this album came with the jarring realization that the lank, bony man who walks between the graves must be someone else entirely. The mystery that clouded over him began to trouble me instantly, nearly as much as the looming foreclosure. 
treading softly through the grass with each ginger step. His feet left behind a trail of sickly light in their wake, a bioluminescent trail of glowing green footprints leading to where he traveled to and fro as he made his way through the gates and between the trees and between the graves. Occasionally, he'd pause to touch a stone, and the stone too would illuminate with this strange pale light. Who was this man who stepped gingerly between the stones, moving like a man sneaking past rows and rows of those in sleep? He moved as though he were fearful the dead may wake. I assumed he was indeed a ghost, and found myself fairly certain of it. Except, seeing ghosts did not usually strike such harsh strings of fear within me. I've seen plenty of ghosts. Mostly they are the standard fare, stereotypes that one might expect, those whose tragic deaths still resonate in frequencies seen by only few. I encounter them with a regularity that would probably bother another man, but this is how this house has always been. A little girl hides behind the furniture downstairs. Her name is Amelia. Usually you can see her feet sticking out from behind a couch or a chair. Two little toddler shoes of vinyl shiny white. If the shoes don't give her away, the giggling will. Still, you must pretend you are afraid when she jumps out at you, otherwise you'll have to hear her mournful weeping seep from the interior of every wall until morning. Good luck finding sleep with that happening. A dismembered hand may sometimes grab your ankle on the last few steps of the basement. If it catches you, you may stumble, but there are only a step or two remaining, so you won't die from the fall. It's best to step on the fingers. Your foot will pass through the ghastly form and the hand will pull sharply away. It will leave you alone for about a month. Then it forgets and tries again. Sometimes a man's head appears in the oven. I do not know his name. He doesn't speak nor answer questions about his identity. He only screams, but you'll only have to hear him wail while the door remains open. These specters I understand. I can navigate them. They are a part of this house and have been since before I was born. Their numbers have grown considerably in the time since. I almost never saw them out in the yard like I saw this man. There was always something about the man outside that unsettled me, even when I had assumed we were related. It was because of this that I made a point to never interact with him. I can't explain how I knew he was different from the rest. I just did. I have never ventured to even entertain the thought of following him to see where he goes. The very sight of him breeds an instinctual discord from the pit of me. The rest of the manifestations are simply parlor tricksters playing games. I would hate to know that once the bank foreclosed, some persons unknown were being haunted by my ghosts. How would they know to ignore the wide-eyed specter of Florence in the linen closet? If you don't, you'll end up needing to replace your towels. Who would teach them that the thumping of the plumbing beneath the first floor washroom is not the house's old pipes, but the handsome ghost of Chauncey, the moldering creature that haunts the washroom cupboard? I say handsome, but there's little left of him that anyone would find alluring aside from his face. He's a crass, disgusting thing, contorted and hiding there in wait in the hopes of exposing himself when you open the door behind the sink, his legs spread wide to present his flaccid penis as the rest of him is bent between the pipes. He taps on the drain with a toilet brush. You can try to take the brush away from him, if you dare, as I did once. I know now not to bother. He found it again within the hour and began tapping twice as loud. These are my ghosts, dare I say friends? That is to say, except for the man who walks between the plots. That ghastly vision that sends frazzled nerves to crawl along my spine is no friend of mine. But why should I give up the rest of them to the bank, to a stranger? As I sat watching the strange ghost stalk the graves, I began to realize that I wouldn't keep this place in my name by conventional ways. 
The sadness of this revelation had come to me in waves. I would have to do something awful to raise the money to stay, but what? There is always one way to remain, even after the bank has come to claim this place. The thought offered itself to me more than once, but no. I refuse to submit myself to think of such things. I had not yet become quite that desperate. If I were to stay, I preferred to do so alive, not as some tragic ghost with the story of my suicide embellished for decades by whoever comes after. From behind me, as I contemplated, a draft of cold rushed in, bringing with it a harsh, breathy scent of Jack Daniels. I knew this ghost well, though he had yet to appear to me since I'd retaken residence here. He only had as much power as I decided to give him, and I'd stopped doing that before the man was dead. I'd been reserving all of my fear for the man lurking outside, not the one that crept out from the shadows behind me. His power to hurt me had long since withered and waned. Hello, father, I whispered without turning to look. I could feel his breath on my neck, but made the easy choice to not flinch away. I don't suppose you have any ideas how I could unbury this place from your debt. I just might. His words were slippery, sodden, wet with whiskey. I released a sigh, still gazing out the window as the man below turned around the corner of a mausoleum and disappeared, taking with him his trail of lights. The footprints slowly dimmed and diminished once the aspect had recessed from sight, one by one, until the world was dark again beyond. Some very wealthy people buried out there, my father said quietly. Lots of them you won't even need to dig. Necklaces, diamond rings, he slurred. I'd start, start with the mausoleum, the mausoleum. Then giving up, the ones above the ground. That's not a bad idea. The ones above the ground. Then work your way down. I turned to face him then. His drunken eyes lacked focus as they gazed. He was much the same as I remembered. His face was gaunt and stubbled. I walked through him as though he weren't there. Go away now, Dad, I said. I needed some rest. Tomorrow's a big day. When I turned to face him again, he was already gone. I awoke at dawn to the sound of Chauncey rapping at the pipe so loudly that it reverberated through every wall. As I took the stairs down, a boy I didn't recognize stood in the path. He whispered, Please make him stop. Sorry, kid. No can do, I said. Don't worry, he'll get bored soon. At the foot of the stairs, I saw Amelia's feet beneath the grandfather clock in the right viewing room. As I passed, she pressed her face through the back and through the glass of the clock door. Boo! I jumped in mimic fright. Oh my, Amelia, I said. That was a nice spot to hide. You got me good today. And as the house chimed with her giggles like a string of charms in the wind, I headed out the door at the back, taking with me a large ring of keys. I spent the day opening and closing many gates and pushing aside heavy doors. The pillowcase I brought to carry the spoils of my robberies was laden so heavily with gold, silver, and diamonds that it had begun to tear. Shocked to find so much and excited by the spur of discovery, I continued my searches with zeal. I didn't realize how much time had passed. I found myself outside after dark and completely unprepared to meet the spindly man. As I exited one of the mausoleums, there he stalked, approaching in his slow, methodical way. I ducked back inside to hide until he had gone past. When I thought that I was in the clear, I stuck out my head. 
When he tipped the brim of his dark felt hat, I realized with dread that I had been seen. But the man who walked between the stones made no attempt to hinder my escape, and for the first time in my life, I found myself having no fear of him, only curiosity. Might I have been wrong about him? With the exception of the strange glowing lights and the overly skeletal shape of his face draped in paper-thin skin, I convinced myself that there was nothing to differentiate him from the rest of my spectral haunts. He was just another entity following a set routine, only one I hadn't yet learned. Before I realized what I had done, I'd set the pillowcase of treasure down inside the mausoleum where I stood and shut the gate behind me. I slowly followed the strange green prints he created in his path a glowing trail to guide me. I trailed him to a mausoleum, an old one at the back. The night before, I thought he'd ducked around it, but I realize now he ducked inside. This mausoleum was the massive monument built to inter the bodies of two prominent figures whose names I knew well. Brayden, etched boldly into the smooth stone arch above the entrance. The Braydens were the prominent family who had established this town the family whose name still grazed a dozen streets and parks within the county line. Could this be the ghost of Edgar Braden himself? He stood within, just inside next to the gate, which, with a push, he'd swung open wide. Edgar? Edgar Braden? He nodded and gestured an open-handed invite, and I entered, disregarding the sinister gleam in his eyes. And this mausoleum was very strange indeed because it lacked the stone casket I expected to see. Instead, I found a staircase to the left, with the flickering light of hearthfire dancing on the steps. He gestured open-handed once again. This time, the invitation was an invite to descend. I heard a melody floating up as we sunk below. Yet, still, I followed down the steps and behind the man into this firelit abode. What I found at the bottom defied logic and reason. An open living space, lit on either side, on the right, by the gentle, modest glow of a hearth, on the left by rows and rows of mason jars, arranged on shelves, each with a slowly turning fog of smoky, emerald light. A woman sat within the room. She was humming a tune as she read a book in an aged rocking chair before the fire. On the small table next to her sat one of those jars, uncapped. I watched her lift it like a cocktail up to her lips and sip the swirling eldritch gas within. The woman looked up at me with a start. Oh! She gasped. This one's still alive, Edgar. She rose from the chair and through her thin nightrobe I saw a trail of scars lacing across her back from her shoulders and tracing down to her waist. I was entranced, and her eyes drank me in hungrily. What exactly was I seeing? What was this place? She made her way across the room, skirting around a bulging suitcase that sat beside her chair. Her footfalls left the same glowing traces in her wake until she stood face to face with me. She leaned in and smelled deeply, taking in a great, massive breath of me before stepping back. A foul grin spread over her then, and her tongue darted between her lips. Do you smell that, Edgar? She asked the man. The words snaked their way out from her, between her black teeth on sour breath. It's been so long since you've brought a fresh soul. I was beginning to wonder if there weren't any left. They're all fled inside the house just past the graves, the thin man said. This here's the one what's been keeping them safe. My shock was set forcefully aside as I felt the instinct of fight or flight begin to rise. I darted past her to the only apparent weapon I could find in the room. The suitcase she had so gingerly skirted around as she rose from her chair was the hard wooden kind from generations past. 
Her hands were reaching as she turned to grab me, but she found herself no match for the sturdy luggage. Swinging by its handle, I connected with her head and sent her spinning to the floor as I shoved my way past the gaunt ghoul that led me into this trap and descended from the stairs from whence I had come. I didn't stop running until I had found my way behind the locked doors of the house. I'm not sure I understood entirely, but I began to reason that they were not specters at all, these two. Were they ghosts, the swinging suitcase would have passed right through them. That must have been the feeling about the man that I was instinctually uncertain of. The mysterious fear I'd felt for no other spirit I'd ever encountered and reserved only for the man who walked between the graves. For my entire life, the feeling I just could not place. Surrounded by a house that was brimming with ghosts, I must have known deep down that he wasn't the same. Those people meant to have been interred in that crypt should have been long dead, and yet I just encountered them still alive. It was something far stranger and more malevolent than I dared to fathom, and I couldn't shake the feeling that they were somehow drinking their unnatural longevity from the souls of the dead. The following day, I went back for the pillowcase. I wasn't sure whether the sale of the stolen goods would be enough to salvage this place from its liens, but it might be a start. A saner man would walk away and let the repossession run its course. But the man who stocks the space between the graves had said, I've been keeping the ghosts that hid in my house safe. I couldn't leave these wayward souls to be collected and devoured. I owed my friends, at the very least, an attempt to keep him at bay. The man still passes beneath the windows every night, but he has now begun to wave. His feet still leave that vibrant light in their wake, and I find him all the more sinister, for he acts as if nothing's changed. My father was not a good man, and how much, if any, of this he'd known I can't say. While I'll never understand what made him turn away his only son, if he'd known any part of what I'd learned these past few days, at the very least, I think I can understand why he drank the way that he did. Many dangers await those who delve into the grave, but we hope, dear listener, that you continue to peer past the veil into the wonders and mysteries beyond. We certainly will. Thanks again to Charlotte Platt and Scott Savino for their contributions to this episode, and to Wart Hill, Eric Little, Ari Ryder, Matt, and J.M. Dow for their performances. A special thank you this month also goes to Dara Rangan for assisting with this episode's production. Featured music and sounds were created by Eric Matias, Kevin McLeod, Patrick Day Artiga, DJ Falafel, Cameron Music, Tana Pistorius, and Halleck. To learn more about our pieces, artists, and readers, please visit our website, monstersoutofthecloset.com. Do yourself a favor, listeners, and check out Black Rainbow, a new anthology of horror stories written by LGBTQIA authors and allies, which this month's contributor, Scott Savino, featured in and helped bring to life. Our next episode, Rot, will be released in August. In the meantime, stay up to date with podcast news, submission calls, and our deep appreciation for spooky art at monstersoutofthecloset.tumblr.com and at pod underscore monsters on Twitter. 
Our supporting producers are Tara Rangan, Lindsay Holt, Sarah Lopez, and Lourdes Kaland. We also want to thank our other patrons who make this show possible, and you, dear listeners, who keep this show from the grave. Until next time, monsters, monsters, 